Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Personality disorder is often referred to as the Cinderella diagnosis of mental health, a neglected part of an already under-resourced part of our healthcare system. But around 1 in 20 people are estimated to have a personality disorder. Suicidal thoughts and attempts are common, and an estimated 3% of people with a personality disorder will die by suicide. As GPs, how can we help this group of patients described in one qualitative study of GPs as dislikable and manipulative? To help, we'll hear from psychologist Leisha Davies, psychiatrist Sumitra Burham Roy, and hear what it's like to be diagnosed with a personality disorder from Marie Stella McClure. I'm Tom Nolan, GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And today I'm joined by uh, Navjoit. Hi, Navjoit. Hello, I'm Navjoit Larder. I am head of education at the BMJ and I'm a locum GP in London. And Jenny as well. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and I'm a clinical editor for the BMJ. Well, welcome back, Navjoit. You missed the, you. the coughing children episode. I enjoyed that. I did listen to it. Um, it was very good, and I used it. I used that information almost immediately in uh, my, you know, my GP shifts that I did. Oh, great! Afterwards, yeah, so that was good. Well, um, well, glad to have you back for for this topic, um, and yeah, and one which I I have felt for a long time really want want to cover personality disorder. I just feel like as GPs, you know, we're seeing patients with personality disorders a lot um so, you know uh, i don't always have very great um help i suppose from from your know, mental health care is that, is that your experience as well yeah i mean i think this is um one of those areas that i um you know i think it's an area where there's there's a lot of um i guess stereotypes and potentially damaging kind of um ideas around and so i think i'm really looking forward to hearing from our interviewees who are going to kind of cut through that and hopefully give us what we need to know to manage the problem well in prim- primary care and Jenny, is this something you've come across a lot of in your practice um i would say not a lot okay but um I think partly that's reflective of the fact that um, in an academic training program, a lot of the patients I saw had already been seen and had already been diagnosed and were in some kind of treatment program. So it it wasn't ever a major diagnostic task. But the other thing that could explain that is that I missed it, right? Like (laughs) there could have been people struggling with, um, borderline personality disorder or other issues that um, maybe just didn't become apparent as mm. a personality disorder. Mm. Um, so I'm interested to talk today about um, how we can think about um, diagnosis and especially, frankly, in 2020, when it's in some contexts normal to have some anger, some stress, Mm. Um, you know, how, how we um, frame those things in order to understand when things go beyond the quote-unquote realm of normal. Yeah. I think one thing I find particularly interesting in this is that, you know, if you read the you know, diagnostic criteria if you like, of, of a personality disorder, you, you, you see things in there which, you know, you think, oh, that, 
that's me, you know. Um, I, I haven't been diagnosed with a personality disorder, but you know, these are on the spectrum of what what I think every person I think experiences, um, and um, I suppose where where they're experienced to, to those ex- extremes or in in a way which um, has real detrimental effects on our relationships, then. You know, I, I really sort of feel for these these people with with, with personality disorder, and um, and often feel very helpless. Uh, and and of course, there's the feelings that that are generated in yourself when you're consulting a, a patient with personality disorder, which is I mean, the other thing I really want to to look at today. And I guess thinking of it in that way that might help explain because that one in twenty figure does sound quite high. And if we are thinking about it as actually. Um, a spectrum which maybe is dynamic as well you know I think that's another thing to think about is these labels um, that we use you know people like you know do they stick and actually is it something that's more um, reflective of a kind of moment in time or you know maybe a mo- over a few years um, and so yeah that that I find that fascinating as well and Tom like you were saying the the feelings that it elicits in in GPs as well you know we all know that there are um, certain patients, certain conditions that can, you know, can unfortunately bring out these kind of more negative feelings. And um, often within, you know, a busy, a busy yeah. uh, session, you don't have time really to reflect on that and yeah. think, you know, what, what is what is my issue there yeah. that's causing that? So I, I sort of mentioned that because I, I feel like, you know, you, you can do two things with that. You can either say it's terrible and unacceptable and we should you know, we, we shouldn't really even even admit to having these sort of feelings with our patients, or you know, we can acknowledge them and be, be maybe more open about them and and see what we can do to to fix things or make you know do things better. And so I felt like it would be helpful to um, to sort of raise that before we hear a bit more about it from our experts. In this first interview, um, I spoke to, to two experts, a psychologist and a psychiatrist. And, and I think of all, all the interviews I've done so far, and you know, I've been very lucky to have interviewed some, some brilliant experts. Uh, for me, I think this is probably the most useful in terms of um, improving my clinical knowledge and, uh, and, and understanding. So we'll let them introduce themselves and uh, talk about it in a moment. So my name is Leisha Davies and I am a clinical psychologist. I have worked in oh gosh, a number of very diverse contexts. I'm originally from South Africa and then I came over to England a while ago. I worked in the NHS and I'm now working in private practice. Hi, and Sumitra? Hi, I'm Sumitra Berman-Roy. I'm a consultant psychiatrist. I work in a community team in Lambeth in London. Um, I also work with Maudsley Learning, um, which is a local sort of educational organisation, um, and we deliver some training for primary care. And I also work with Leisha in the private sector. There's lots of different types of personality disorders. I think when we talk about personality disorder, quite often we're inherently talking about sort of emotionally unstable personality disorder or borderline personality disorder, which are pretty similar so, terms that can be used pretty interchangeably. So I'll, I'll be talking about that. Um, yeah. And essentially, 
what we're describing in that is someone who has a real sort of lability of emotion. So their emotions are emotionally unstable. They go up and down a lot, can be very quickly sort of triggered um, and quite often by things that they might not even notice are triggering them. So there might be quite small things like the expression of someone's voice or um, something that happens that just triggers off a memory or a feeling. And so their emotions can swing up and down very, very quickly. And that can result in um, a lot of associated behaviours. So they can struggle with interpersonal interactions, um, often... Um, getting into arguments with people or feeling very close to people and then feeling very let down very easily. So again, sort of very hot and cold because they might develop a very intense, strong relationship with someone, either a partner or a friend or you as a doctor. Um, and then something happens where they feel let down or disappointed and you haven't met the sort of um, ideal or the image they'd set up in their mind. And so you, they feel terribly disappointed and everything can collapse it's often then associated, because the ex emotions are so extreme, can be associated with things such as self-harm, um, because they have a lot of, um, uh, well, their emotions can sort of collapse down very quickly and they can be in a very desperate place. Um, so really, it's I'd say it's a lot about interpersonal difficulties and then some ways that they've learnt to cope with things which aren't that helpful, such as self-harm being the classic example. So, so we'll we'll ask you a bit later on a bit, a bit more about how, as GPs, we can um, you know manage some of those um, relationships, I suppose, with our patients. But um, I'm interested that that's quite a, a pragmatic view of of mental health. I mean, is is that is that one you share, Alicia? Or I do. I mean, I I think where I start off in my mind when I think about personality disorder, my starting point is well, what is personality? Um, mm. And of course, there are, you know, personality theory is quite diverse. There's lots of different ways of understanding it. But I think fundamentally, um, it's generally thought of as a collection of characteristics or traits that are developed as we've grown up and which make each of us mm. unique and individual. Um, and these characteristics or traits will include the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we behave. And then personality disorder, um, I suppose, is the degree to which these aspects of someone's personality have developed to make life difficult, both for themselves and often for people around them on a pretty consistent basis. Um, and I think the way that this difficulty might present itself is often in interpersonal relationships, the ability to keep out of trouble, um, the ability, for the most part, to be able to control one's feelings, one's behaviours. And I think um, for people with personality disorders, life is often more difficult. And so as a result, they often have other mental health problems, such as depression, substance misuse problems, eating disorders, body dysmorphia, and so on. So that's, I suppose, how I think about personality and personality disorder. Mm. Right. And um, of course, personality is so much to the core to who we are, isn't it? Um, maybe you come on to now about what that label means for, for patients, how they, how they re respond or... There isn't... If I have to share a diagnosis with a patient, I have to say I'm still waiting for the moment where I don't feel anxious. 
about sharing that diagnosis because it is such it is a very evocative thing you know it goes right to the heart of who you are and uh, here personality disorder even the word i mean the word emotionally unstable personality disorder oh my goodness you know that's it 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 uh, it's there's a lot of stigma attached to it mm. there's a lot of shame um so i think that it is it's it's a challenging thing i think to share with someone but of course you know why do we do it we do it like all diagnosis is because it helps direct people towards treatment and there are really really good treatments out mm. there at the moment mm. It's interesting you say about the, the moment when you're you're not feeling anxious, is that, and uh, I guess as a GP, therefore perhaps um, we should hold on, hold off sharing this diagnosis and, uh, and, until we have a, I guess until we have a relationship, or until the the, the patient has um, seen somebody like yourself. What, what, do you have any tips on that? I I feel you know sharing that within the context of a relationship, I think is very important. I also think it's something that can't come after one one session or one clinical interview. I mm. think it's a it's something that unfolds as you gradually get to know someone. But perhaps Sumitra might have more to add there. I mean, I think typically it wouldn't be expected for GPs to make or give a diagnosis of emotionally unstable personality disorder or borderline personality disorder. I think that generally that would be done by a psychiatrist or or if they're seeing a psychologist for a consistent period um i'm not saying that can't be done in primary care but i think that wouldn't my, my feeling is that that generally wouldn't be expected um i don't know what you think tom as a gp yeah yeah i mean i, <laughs> I guess that there are some patients for whom it's very difficult to get them in front of a psychiatrist i mean that, that's i'm sure the case up and down the country and you know to get them in front of someone like Leisha, you know, twice as hard. And uh, I suspect we have a lot of patients who we manage at a, a level where, as I say, we, we can't get them in front of a psychiatrist where they perhaps might have a personality disorder. But, um, you know, is it therefore there in those situations better to, to share that with them, maybe in a very tentative way, as a way of trying to help them to understand um, a little bit more about the, how they are feeling? or um, or not so it's so i mean i suppose when i give this diagnosis i would normally start by saying this is a horrible let term you know that the okay. and what we've just discussed that sort of term that you know this is I, I i say that you know i think it's really unhelpful that it's called a personality disorder i don't think that that's you know your personality with me compared to your personality with your mum your partner um somebody that you're at work with your personality is different in all of these settings and we think with personality disorders the idea that the reason that they're called that is because the whole point is that it affects your personality in various different domains it's pretty consistent through a lot of your life but but as Leisha was saying, personality is is very fluctuant, you know, and it, it varies from one time to another. So I sort of say to people that, you know, I don't think it's the most helpful term in the world to say that you've got a personality disorder. But yeah. 
Is there a better one? Is there, is there one that, that some in, in your field are suggesting you use instead? Because this is a bit controversial, but I think that there are a lot of overlaps between certain different conditions. So say, for example, things like complex PTSD, where someone might have, um, might have experienced repeated trauma through their life and then have a symptomatic presentation, which is where there is a lot of overlap with a UPD. And therefore, sometimes I think that that can feel that makes more sense to someone who who has experienced that is that 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 is what I've experienced is that I've had a series of traumatic events. And because of that, I have this pattern of behavior. I think the difference is that something like complex PTSD to, to, to fulfill that criteria, you have to also fulfill the classical PTSD criteria of sort of avoidance, um, intense remembering, that sort of stuff, um, hypervigilance, which you don't have to necessarily have for EUPD. So that so it is different, but there is a lot of overlap. And so what I sometimes say to people is that, you know, I think what your, you know, your, your symptoms, they fit with this diagnosis. It's not a very helpful sort of label, but really almost I'd say, can we just put the label, put the name to one side for a minute and let's talk about symptoms. And and then I have to say, even though I think a lot of the time, a lot of the diagnosis, we're the ones who, who are stigmatising it. Because I think as healthcare professionals, we've met a lot of people with EUPD. And sometimes that's very challenging because of um, the interaction that we have. And I think that therefore we have a lot of anxiety and apprehension around sort of giving this. But sometimes people have never heard of it before. So why should they have any stigma associated with it? It's just, it's something like anything else. I agree that the term personality disorder doesn't sound great. But I think sometimes when you then go through symptoms with someone, um, and a really good sort of website to use is the Mind website, so the charity Mind. They've got a really nice, um, I think it's a sort of borderline personality disorder toolkit, but it's, it's, they've definitely just got a nice page that describes symptoms really clearly. And I've had so many people who read that through, and, or I'll read it through with them, or sort of open up the page and say, shall we have a look at this? And it just, it's like a sigh of relief because they've been experiencing all of this and they know that something doesn't feel right. Everybody's telling them that something is not right. And then to suddenly see it sort of laid out and described makes you feel like I'm not going mad, that this is something that every that is recognised and that other people are experiencing. And it's a very sort of normalizing or it, you don't feel so alone i think that's the biggest thing so i think it can be very helpful the diagnosis as well not always but sometimes i thought that was fascinating um interview uh i think uh, it also kind of mirrored, I think, a bit of our discussion at the beginning where um, talking about how uh, I thought what they were saying about personality disorder not being the most helpful label because it has a stigmatizing effect. Um, and there is some, you know, shame and stigma associated with that diagnosis um, is fascinating because of the point that it gets in the way of talking about symptoms and talking about actually the effect that it has on the patient. You can get sort of wrapped up in thinking about the label um where and that 
and I think even in this mm. podcast when we've been dis- discussing it, I've been kind of focusing on, oh, here's this, you know, here's the controversy around the label, but actually what I suppose we want to get into is what does this mean for our patients, for the care that we provide? And so I think in that way, mm. it was quite good at just sort of focusing my mind on actually what's important as mm. well. I think it's a, an important point as well that this isn't really a GP diagnosis. Um, but yeah, but I, I do feel... It made me feel... <laughs> yeah, okay. But over and over again. <laughs> I mean, if only we had, um, uh, you know, psychiatrists like them, you know, readily yeah. accessible in... Um, to us, which you made that point, Tom, very Thank well. You. That you know. Well, it's so hard, isn't it? Because um, well, actually, Sumitra was the psychiatrist for my area for a bit, and now he's disappeared oh, well. off somewhere okay. else. And, uh, <laughs> but um, but even then, you know, there was so one psychiatrist for the whole of our our, our CCG, you know, in in that sort of community role, uh, and you'd refer people in, and you know, they're very very busy and. You know, if, if I'm referring because I want a patient to be assessed for possible um, EUPD, then often that, that actually wouldn't happen because, you know, they're not, they're not that unwell, in inverted commas. Uh, or even you get told that they don't have a mental health diagnosis, you know, discharge the GP. So um, I do think there's a problem there. And, and so it's useful to hear some tips about how you might uh, e- even have a, you know, as I say, a tentative conversation with a patient about, about it. Yeah. Uh, with the goal yeah. that this might be really helpful to them. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Not with the goal that this is causing yeah. chaos in my yeah. practice, but and actually reflecting on why that is, you know, if it's a difficult healthcare system to mm. navigate, you know, and yeah. access care. Well, the other thing I thought was uh, was, was great. I, I always love talking to psychologists because they're so like in tune with their own sort of feelings, aren't they? And just saying about how, um, you know, if I if I don't feel anxious about telling them that's that's the point where I can share the diagnosis uh I think we we do learn a lot about you know using our own reactions and feelings as GPs don't we but I, I feel like I could learn a lot from from people like Leisha about doing that better oh for sure yeah yeah definitely I thought that was such a fascinating point it's interesting to hear you guys talk about um limited access to psychiatric services Um, that certainly characterized my practice in the United States. Well, I mean, and in Cambodia. Um, And I, and I guess I always feel like there is this tension between work in primary care and referral to psychiatry where as primary care doctors, we take care of a lot of patients, mental health issues. Right. Um, And there's always that, give and take with respect to referral. Um, Sometimes it's unclear how much we're expected to take on. And because our availability is higher than a specialist, even if it's a psychiatrist, you know, we end up having that longitudinal relationship with a patient or um, maybe we become the person that, you know, we, we, like we are the healthcare provider in their life who lets them down in, in the case of, um, of what Dr. Sumitra was talking about. Um, so yeah, I, it's interesting for me again to hear that um, you guys also struggle with access. Um, I'd be interested in um, what kind of system structure might exist to do better with this. Um, but my sense is that everywhere it kind of lacks 
sufficient um, numbers in terms of providing yeah. adequate mental health care. Well, in my area, about every 18 months, they change the whole system structure because the old one's not working. <laughs> so uh, I don't think we've got, got the right answer yet. <laughs> um, I guess at the end there, they were talking about how, how it how sharing that diagnosis with a patient can be very useful for them. Um, I wonder if that takes us on nicely to, to your interview, Jenny. Yeah, so I had a great conversation with author Marie Stella McClure. She was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder when she was 38. Um, her book is called Borderline, a Memoir. And she and I had a conversation about the path in her life toward diagnosis and her reaction to getting that diagnosis. Let's take a listen. It was awful to find out that that's what it was because I felt like it was a stigma. So, so an absolute relief because it explained all these things that I didn't understand about myself. Why I could suddenly get so angry about nothing. And then why I could be so unhappy and so full of remorse for days. Hmm. Why I felt the need to smoke weed and to have really inappropriate sexual relationships with guys mm-hmm. that I didn't even like. All this mm-hmm. was explained to me, you know, and why I couldn't mm-hmm. control my emotions when public sometimes. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a relief at the same time. <laughs> How have your feelings about it changed over time? You know, as you said, it was a release, a godsend. Have you continued to feel mm-hmm. kind of grateful for this way to? understand yourself or or how is your relationship now with that it's funny because it's mixed because a thing about borderline is you can have extreme thinking so what you can mm-hmm. think one day may be totally different the next day mm-hmm. having awareness around that and being able to observe that makes it less make it's weird i can observe it rather than live within it but my relationship with it is again sometimes i still feel like I'm glad that I found out because I could take steps but other times it's difficult and it's painful mm-hmm. to live with because I, I sometimes feel like I go into a bit of like self-pity mm-hmm. I feel like I have to do all these things every day to keep myself sane and to function properly and to not destroy my relationships because even though I have all this awareness there's still something inside me that tries mm-hmm. to destroy my relationships it, it's it's like pretty horrible and the awareness helps me not to do it, but I sometimes mm-hmm. feel like I'm fighting a constant battle not mm-hmm. to do these things, not to carry out my urges, or to think, okay, I'm having a bad day. I'm aware that I really want to send a really crappy message to my boyfriend, but if I do that, it's going to disturb our relationship. But sometimes it's difficult not to act on those urges. And <clears throat> so, yeah, it, sometimes I feel like it's a blessing to have found out and sometimes I think it's an absolute curse that I've had to live mm. with this. So I have mixed feelings about it. That makes total sense. Um, I'm curious to hear more about kind of the types of things that you can do and the way that you are empowered to manage BPD on a day-to-day basis. Um, so, you know, because we all... At, at to some level have urges you know to express our emotions um and i'm curious how you manage to keep those in check well i've done i have to say it's been like nearly five years since i got a diagnosis the first mm-hmm. thing i did was i bought a book called mindfulness of Pe- uh, borderline personality disorder 
which mm-hmm. was amazing because it explained the physiological things that were happening inside my brain because I think maybe this is all in my head maybe I'm just like a drama queen maybe I build all this up out of nowhere this book explained the physiological processes to me and then gave me little things I could do to deal with it um, being mindful about things that's what's helped me learn to be able to observe my thoughts and observe mm-hmm. my emotions so it's I couldn't control my urges and impulses before because I don't think I was even aware that they were there mm-hmm. they just came and I acted and I regretted so the mindfulness has been able to help me put a little pause there like maybe give a little buffer between me and my emotions and my urges sorry no so for for some things you know you take a treatment whether that's physical therapy or a medicine and it gets better and it never comes back again and some things are more yeah. kind of chronic and we live with them every day but i'm just curious you know do you see this you know, treatment ever resulting in a cure or, or what does this look like for you going forward? I suppose being realistic, when I first got my diagnosis, I was convinced I could cure myself. And I was told by other people, you can't really cure BPD. You can get to groups that, and you can learn to maintain it and you can learn to deal with your emotions and calm, calm down. But it's like a lifelong work. So for me, having BPD means I have to take extra good care of myself um like self-care is really important i don't think it will ever get better i've come to terms with the fact now i think i'm always gonna be quite extreme in my thoughts and in my emotions but if i if i like do the stuff i need to do every day that i can maintain and i don't have to have like an awful life that's full of trauma But yeah, it's difficult because like you say, you can't just take a pill and then it gets better and goes away and it's a thing of the past. It's something I feel like I will always live with. They say as you get older, it just starts to calm down a bit on its own because we do all calm a little with age. But <clears throat> for me personally, it means I just have to take loads of care of myself. I have to watch what I eat because I don't have sugars now and that's like made a difference to my mood. So I used to get really bad sugar highs because I used to just crave chocolate and sugary stuff mm-hmm. and that would make me high I've been completely sugar-free for almost a year now. And that's made a difference. Even things like not having too much caffeine because it will make me more anxious and nervous than usual. Mm-hmm. Eating correctly, doing exercise, taking care of my mind and spirit as well by mm-hmm. doing meditation. Um, and I feel like <clears throat> that's, that's what it means to me. I do worry sometimes about the future. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't feel like this still in 20 years' time because it's difficult. It can be quite exhausting to live with yourself yeah. sometimes. Mm-hmm. The other thing with BPDs as well, you can find it will settle down for a few weeks or even a couple of months and <laughs> you don't need therapy, everything seems calmer and just when you think it's all okay, something will trigger you, something bad will happen and then it will trigger all the other stuff off again. So for me, it's like prevention being better than the cure. If I've already let myself go really extreme in emotion, it's hard to bring myself back to baseline. Whereas if I can get awareness around what's happening before I go too far, then it will stop it going too far. So I want to wrap up just by asking for people who may be living with borderline personality disorder, whether or not it's diagnosed or not, um, what one or two Mm -hmm. pieces of advice do you have for them or their family members who might be concerned? So the family members, first of all, it's about getting a balance. It's like understanding that the person sometimes actually can't control their emotions and they're not acting like that on purpose. It's a case of they're out of control, validating how they see things and how they feel the world because being validated is really important. 
but at the same time as having that also having boundaries in place because I mean not so much now I have a lot more respect for people now I'm older when I was younger I treated people how I could get away with treating mm-hmm. them if someone put the foot down with me and wouldn't let me get away with it I wouldn't keep trying on with that person you know mm-hmm. so it's important to have boundaries that you have understanding and validation so it's you know and then for a person it's hard to give advice to a person who's completely undiagnosed because if they've got no awareness around themselves it's difficult to give advice but somebody who's maybe undiagnosed but aware of what's happening it's like maybe push for for that diagnosis or even just research more about cures for it because if someone's not going to give you a diagnosis it doesn't mean that you can't get treatment for yourself like dialectic behavior therapy i would recommend that to anyone who suffers borderline personality but also trauma counseling Mm -hmm. because usually some sort of trauma has set it off and it's not the case that everyone I suppose is an exception to every rule but most the rule of thumb with borderline is that a trauma set it off and that needs to be dealt with as well it's like it's hard to have dialectic behavior therapy because that deals with the present and with your behaviors and what's going on now what you need to sort of validate what's happened to you in the past in order to be able to move forward That was really interesting, Jenny, and, and not just interesting, but really positive. I feel very kind of, you know, positive about the the good that can come, you know, from, from diagnosis and treatment. Yeah, Marie was a joy to talk to, and she has this incredible level of insight into mm. herself, her past. She, I mean, she has she and I had a longer conversation and Mm. she has done a lot of really amazing work to, you know, and as she was describing some therapy, um, um, some trauma counseling, you know, the mindfulness, she has a really active gratitude practice that has helped her get through COVID. Um, I mean, I Mm. was really, again, impressed um, by her level of insight and um, the way that she described, you know, what is what is clearly um, something that she puts a lot of effort and thought into, um, you know, listening again and hearing her say, you know, I, I don't have to have an awful life, um, even if the self-care that she does on a regular basis can get to the point of being exhausting. Um, that just really resonates with me um that you know a lot of times people who have gone through these incredible traumas and end up finding themselves in precarious situations um and you know i think there is this notion that trauma begets trauma and so people who've gone through terrible experiences end up having more and more terrible experiences. So again, hearing Marie say, I don't have to have an awful life um, is really powerful. Yeah, very much so. And I think um, just the, I know we uh, I, we sometimes, you know, as part of the BMJ's sort of patient partnership campaign, we often kind of think about, um, you know, when you look at things from the patient perspective, the amount of self-management that patients are putting in to kind of manage their own conditions and manage their care compared to what we perceive as that kind of 
very uh, sort of small amount that we might contribute as healthcare professionals. I think particularly in Marie's example, I think it's that's really striking is, you know, just how much effort um, she's putting into, um, you know, and, and that level of insight is, is really incredible. I thought um, it was really interesting. You know, we've just been talking um, earlier about the um, stigma and perhaps some more damaging aspects of um, a personality disorder diagnosis. And actually, it sounds like in this instance, it's been helpful for Marie to have had that diagnosis, to be able to access care and to have been able to understand what's been um, going on with her. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, she didn't have a completely straightforward trajectory, as she explained okay. to me in detail. Um, she had had an encounter in, in a healthcare setting um, where someone kind of offered to her, maybe you should get this checked out at a moment in her life that she was not expecting to hear that, maybe wasn't ready to hear that. And where, you know, she told me she was like, what? You know, and found it extremely offensive. Right. So it's been um, a journey, I guess. And did it some more reflection, um, and and then kind of um, w- finally sought sought care and sought the answer as to whether or not this could be um, going on with her after reading a book about it. Um, and, but but yeah, I mean, there is the sense of relief at feeling understood and seen when that diagnosis is made. Um, Again, like she explained, you know, it's not her fault. There is something going on where that um, link between urges and emotions is sometimes broken. Um, The, or um, where the, I guess what I want to say is where the link between urges and emotions is, I don't know, accelerated in her case. Um, But at the same time, you know, she has had some negative experiences. Um, One physician in particular said something very unkind to her about how she didn't deserve a particular service because she wasn't going to get better. Um, So certainly there is still a challenge in terms of, you know, all the energy and work that she has to put into this. And and when you have this in your medical history, um, it, it follows you around. I thought that um, point that we heard towards the end about accessing trauma counseling also was really important. I think just as a reminder to us all about really thinking about the kind of contextual factors that underpin often these difficulties and more often than not, the are extremely difficult kind of backgrounds that that lead lead to these presentations and, and these moments of crisis. And so, I don't know. I found that a useful reminder, and I, I think that's not necessarily something that's at the forefront of um, you know when we think about personality disorders. There isn't perhaps enough of that thinking about, which I think came up in the first interview we heard as well. It's like if you know if you're thinking about something like PTSD, that is much more about you know the circumstances that led you to get to that point. Yeah, uh, a psychiatrist once said to me a little nugget which I found really helpful was you know when when you're in front of a patient and you're feeling, I guess, that that sense of, <laughs> you know, I don't want to help this person or, you know, that, that kind of counter-transference where you're feeling very negative towards them. He said that, you know, try to 
you know to find out what it is in their past and and you know that will reconnect you with, with sort of and build mm. that rebuild that empathy because usually you know what when you really understand what that person's been through to get to this point you can then start to rebuild and yeah yeah rebuild that that relationship with them gosh that's such a good piece of advice that's very helpful yeah so we're going to hear again from Lisha and Sumitra about um, how to help a patient who, who's suicidal. Um, but, um, you know, the conversation I had was was so useful. There's there's loads of really, really great nuggets in there. Um, they talk about um, mentalising, which I hadn't heard of before. Uh, toxic shame, which uh, uh, I thought <laughs> I'd probably get a lot of. Um, and and a, a lot about boundaries as well. And we, we often talk about boundaries or discuss or debate you know what that patient needs is boundaries, but they they um, very usefully discuss that in a, in a positive way. You know, boundaries are there for the patients to be to be kind to them rather than as a as a punishment, which I think it's often discussed in in that sense. Uh, so you can hear all of that uh, full interview with with Leisha and Sumitra uh, on our Deep Breath In channel. Uh, we're going to put that out probably a week after we um, put this uh, podcast out. So the best way to hear that and make sure you don't miss it is to subscribe to the Deep Breath In channel uh, so you get a notification when that's uh, released. And uh, yeah, I probably recommend listening to that even more than listening to us <laughs> uh, rabbit on about it. Oh, for sure. <laughs> it's <was> really useful. <laughs> I can't wait to hear that. Um, yeah, that sounds fascinating. So we'll we'll hear one more, more section from that. And that is, as I said, about how to help a patient who's suicidal. And that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims, We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, We're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And now let's go back to my interview with Lisha and Sumitra. So I want to ask, um, taking first perhaps the most stressful scenario as a GP and, and for the patient too, um, where the, the, the patient with EUPD is in crisis, I suppose, and um, maybe is on the phone or even in front of you, you know, suicidal or um, you know, in, in a huge amount of distress. Um, can you give us some tips on, on, on how to, you know, do, we, do we just manage that in, in the usual way or is there anything specific we can do um, differently? knowing that this person has 
has these particular ways of thinking and and um, and, and so on. What's happened with the person is they have reached that sort of crescendo of their emotions where they're not being able to sort of see different perspectives. It's all very black or white. And actually their head is so um, loud at this point. All the sort of thoughts in their mind are so overwhelming that they're really not being able to sort of connect their feelings with um, their thoughts. They're not being able to almost sort of argue with themselves or rationalize with themselves and so that's quite often when they when you feel that desperate the only thing that you can do is to do something that's as powerful or loud as these thoughts in your mind and that may be where self-harm comes in or that may be where even a suicidal attempt comes in so the first thing that I would sort of do is almost try to help the person feel a bit more grounded to try and sort of take them out of their head a little bit and that may be um with using some skills but it might be with something quite simple like just talk me through exactly what happened let's not sort of get into the why and you know just tell me just talk me through your day what's happened so far how have you got to this point and sometimes just replaying events you you might think it might make someone worse but quite often it doesn't it just they they talk it out and and they're being grounded back to the here and now and out of their head and, and you know, describing events. So that can be a very helpful thing. And then to even, and I, th- sorry, I, what I was, I was going to say, don't, try not to be judgmental. But, uh, but what I mean by that is I think they're talk quite often, if someone's talking about suicide or talking about self-harm, it provokes a lot of anxiety in you as a practitioner. And so I think at that point, it's important to not try and problem solve everything immediately, but sometimes just hear what they're saying and really validate their experience. So sort of say, I can I can really imagine or I, I think I can understand why that would be so upsetting or or how that's making you feel. So to really sort of hear what they're saying, try and validate it, help them talk through what's going on. And then I think to try and really dis- distinguish between are these thoughts about self-harm? Are these fleeting suicidal ideas, which they may have long standing, Or is this a clear plan right now? You know, can they sort of think about what they need to do tomorrow or the day after? Or they've got some plans for who they're going to reach out to this afternoon or evening? If if. If they can do all of that and they're sort of orientated around the future, we talk about this sort of future orientation, but basically it's what you're trying to figure out is, is mm. this someone's expression of distress or is this someone who's saying, I'm going to do it right now? Because that's a different yeah. thing. Uh, and that's not easy to tease yeah. apart often, but I, it's the conversation I'd start to have. Yeah. And Lisha, um, can you um, add, add to any of that? I mean, that's some really helpful tips there, but what, what else do you discuss with your patients? I think suicidal ideation is often experienced by people uh, who have EUPD on a daily basis. And, and I think this is maybe what distinguishes it from, say, people with depression, where the suicidality might be active in a discrete episode of depression. So I think what can be helpful um, I suppose a psychologist would work with it in much more detail, but for uh, uh, for a GP, 
what can be helpful, I think, is just to name and acknowledge that there is a suicidal part of the personality and that sometimes this part has a function. Um, often the suicidal part is a way of trying to cope. It's, it's, it's perhaps a way of trying to find some kind of blessed relief from all the internal anguish that just goes round and round and round in this person. So I think sometimes just naming that as I see, I recognize, but this is a part of you. It's not the whole of you. And I think what's, what often happens in a suicidal state is you've got, you've got kind of like a mental wipeout. You, you've, lost, you've lost the ability to keep perspective, to keep, uh, to keep multiple um, levels of, of thought, of feeling, of relating in mind. Um, and it's just sort of all desperate. So I think that in itself can be very containing. I mean, there are some other some other things that I do, and again, I think it would depend on on the relationship that the uh, the sufferer has with the GP. But I think sometimes just unpacking that part, really coming to understand what is its function. Um, and I suppose not being afraid to engage with that part. And again, just in, in labeling or naming it as a part begins to create that much needed bit of distance between collapsing into that state and being able to separate it out from the other ways of being. So I think I've, I've said to patients in the past, and maybe I just want you to tell me this is okay now, but uh, uh, that, that, you know, a lot of people with various mental health problems do feel suicidal a lot of the time and often that's a, a means of creating some options or um you know when, when you feel like there aren't any options it's a, almost a comfort to to um to, to feel that there is this option is, is that is that okay to say if <laughs> i got that right yes absolutely yeah. and i think that's validating that, yeah. you know, that that is for the person in that moment, that's the option that they have on the table. And of course, where we're trying to move them towards is to have other options exactly. on the table. Yeah. Exactly. That was a huge relief. What an excellent um, interview. Right. So helpful and um, so clear. I think um, the, the call about some, you know, it can often be, um, it's so interesting to think about how, um, you know, a consultation with someone who's feeling suicidal or in um, those in a suicidal crisis particularly, um, just thinking about how in that time of, you know need for for a patient you know our own feelings can so often color how we approach that consultation as well um i just found that all very very interesting totally and i was so grateful to hear them express in a really clear way of their advice mm. don't try to problem solve immediately but just hear just validate think so often it's just like what you were saying earlier tom like this 
this, this crescendo of emotions comes up and it feels like our own pulses begin to race and you start to feel like hot and sweaty and like, oh no, what am I going to do? And how long is this going to put me behind? As awful as that sounds, um, because that is obviously not the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually to just hear and validate, um, I mean, it sounds like such clear-headed yeah. advice. I think sometimes, um, <clears throat> you know, the trigger can be, uh, you know, something, some problem that needs solving. You know, it's my housing or my, my, my benefits have gone or, um, uh, you know, I, I, my appointment with the psychiatrist was cancelled or, you know, that, those are the sort of examples I've, I've heard. Um, and it is tempting to go, oh, it's okay though, I can fix that for you. I'll, uh, I'll get on the phone and sort it out right away, or I'll, you know, speak to your housing officer. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, you, you can you can end up doing things which, uh, or promising things which really you can't deliver, and um, it's very useful to hear that advice. Not to you know that's not the right way to go. Actually, and that's mm. not helpful to to. What did you? Either. Yeah, I think that's that's true, and I think that's. I, I don't know. I think I, I could apply that to so many of the consultations I have where actually probably what's more important for me in the moment mm. is to try and really see see and hear my, pa- you know, what, what the patient is telling me. Um, what I, I thought also is very interesting um, about na- naming and acknowledging the kind of suicidal component and the, the kind of the, the option or mm. the release that that, um, you know, that brings just having that on the table. I, I I totally get that that's important. I think in practice, I find that really challenging. I mean, there's still a small part of me, I don't know if I should admit this, that even when I'm, you know, asking about self-harm and suicide in general, I just have to overcome this like base idea that I have that, you know, well, this might be potentially damaging or, or planting the idea, which I think as like very junior, even as medical students, you know, you always have that slight hesitation. And so I think, I think for me, you know, it's just made me reflect on just talking about suicide. I think I, I have to kind of maybe overcome some um, ideas I have about actually what, mm. um, you know, how, how I can get better at doing that. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad that's really been helpful. I've, I found it incredibly helpful, as I said. And you can listen to the whole interview on the Deep Breath In channel if you subscribe. Uh, and also please leave us a review if, you, um, if you're enjoying listening to the podcast. Um, we're going to leave you with one last, very small snippet from the, the interview with Lisa and Sumitra, where Sumitra talks about the positive side to having a personality disorder. I mean, I quite often say this to people when I'm first discussing diagnosis, is that I think that, yes, yeah, so and my take on it is, is that people with EUPD they really feel things. So, you know, there are some people that walk through life going around upsetting everybody. Everybody hates them in a sense. And they, they, they don't have a clue. They think everybody loves them. You know, they just sort of, they, they have that really thick emotional skin and maybe don't have that sensitivity. But I think people with the UPT, they've got a real skill in that they're really able to empathise and feel and they feel things really intensely. And Unfortunately, what's happened is at some point in their life that they haven't the skills that either they had learnt to to regulate that response, that feeling have been interrupted or they never learnt those skills. So they're just at 
the mercy of these really intense feelings. And you're right, whether that's anger or anxiety or sadness, it's not a specific feeling. It's all feelings are amplified. That on, a, on one side is a really, it's a really positive thing about that person's personality is that it's their superpower, you know, they're people that can really feel and can really empathise and quite often will go on to do some of the most amazing humanitarian stuff because they really, really care. Um, and so I quite often try and use that to sort of frame, and very honestly, that this is where we want to get you to, is to be able to use this thing rather than just be at the mercy of it. Um, because it's a huge, really it's a great thing for society that people like you exist who feel this way. You just, we just have to find a way to help you to be able to, 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 to use that. So we're coming to the end of today's episode. Uh, thank you to Alicia Davies, Sumitra Burren-Roy and Marie Stella McClure. Thank you also to Childcare for the music that, that uh, you hear during the episode and Duncan Jarvis, our producer. So see you next time, Jenny. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. And you too, Dav Joy. See you next uh, time. <laughs> so all that's left is our deep breath out. And this week we've polled some of our colleagues at the BMJ offices to get their favourite relaxing sounds. And the one that came out on top was the sound of the rain. So here you go, Ruth and Berta, this is for you.